Welcome to the Real Estate Secrets Podcast for healthcare professionals, hosted by Austin Hare and Nathan Palmer, who together have over two decades of real estate knowledge and investing. This show is about sharing lessons in commercial real estate that were learned from trial and error and working directly with CEOs of billion-dollar healthcare organizations. Our mission is to teach the insider strategies to everyday healthcare operators in order to get access to the best real estate at the best prices. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Negotiation Part 9. We are reviewing Chris Boss's book, Never Split the Difference, and we are talking about Chapter 9 today titled Bargain Hard. So let's get started. This is a story about a salsa red Toyota 4Runner. Now, Chris Voss was obsessed with this new color of red that Toyota came out with. Um, Just the name alone, salsa red, just had this sexy ring to it. And so apparently a lot of other people thought that it was a good sounding car too because when he started calling the dealers to see if they were in stock, almost all of them were unavailable. And so there was one single location that had him left, so he called him, set up an appointment, drove out there, and he told the salesman exactly what he wanted. And so the salesman um, looked up the salsa red Toyota 4Runner. You told him that it was $36,000. And so we got to remember the key to a good haggle is to rattle the counterpart ever so slightly, but in the nicest way possible. And so what Chris said is, I can pay $30,000 today up front, all cash. Um, I'm afraid I, I just can't pay anymore. And the sales manager replied, I'm sure you understand that we can't do that. It's listed at $36,000. Chris, you know, ever so eloquently, just said, how am I supposed to do that? And the sales manager replied, I'm sure we can figure something out with financing the $36,000, he said. Chris responded, it's a beautiful truck. It's worth more than what I'm offering. I'm sorry, this is really embarrassing. And, you know, a couple things to note is um, he's not talking about the truck at all, the features, nothing, right? He doesn't, he's not trying to downplay it, not trying to belittle it, not trying to point out anything wrong with the item itself, simply keeping it in the realm of money. Um, he's also apologizing, right? And, and um, offering a, an admission that he's embarrassed. So the guy just stared at Chris in silence, um, <laughs> didn't know what to say. And then he went back to his manager and was just back there forever. And so um, he was taking so long, Chris thought he should have offered less. And when he returned, like he was acting like it was Christmas. And he said his boss had approved a new price. He was really excited to tell him that it was going to be, they could sell it for $34,000. And so again, Chris told him that the offer was very generous, told him that it was the car of his dreams. He just said, I, you know, I wish I could do that. This is so embarrassing. I really can't. So the guy went silent and he trudged off for another eternity. Uh, Chris was sitting there waiting for a long time, and when the sales manager came back, he said, you win. He approved $32,500, and then he pushed him over a piece of paper that said, you win on it. It had a smiley face, red letters, all the whole works. <laughs> so again, Chris responded, I am so grateful. You've been very generous. The truck is worth more than my price. I'm sorry, I just can't do that. He stood up with no smiles this time, and he went back. One minute later, he returned and said, we can do that. <laughs> Two days later, he drove off in the truck for $30,000. So without ever saying no, he said no with using the four different methods that we talked about in the previous chapters. Uh, most negotiations hit the point where it's going to turn into brass knuckles, you know, and you've done everything correctly, and now it's time to bargain. 
The clash for cash sends most people into a cold sweat and they want to run away from it. So you've got to learn to embrace this part or you'll lose um, straight up. So let's talk about bargaining. To bargain well, you got to shed all your assumptions about haggling and any preconceived notions. There are psychological currents below the surface of every person and you'll never see it coming. So there's different negotiation styles, okay? It's really important that you learn what type you are, first of all, and then what type your counterpart is. And you've got accommodators, you've got the assertive types, and you've got analysts. And we're going to talk about each of the three of those now. So each style can be effective, and you do need elements from all three. So you can give and take certain elements that will help you in your negotiation. 65% of all attorneys actually use the cooperative type, not the assertive type that's showcased in Hollywood and on TV. And so most of us have the ability to change our styles a little bit, but to be good, you really have to know yourself at the end of the day. So let's talk about the analysts first. These guys are methodical and diligent. Time is of no consequence to them. Take as much time as possible to get it right. That's the most important thing. They do not want to lose face. They do not want to be embarrassed. They speak distant and coldly, which actually can put people off. It puts people off a lot of the time. And they hate surprises. They'll spend a lot of time doing research so they're not surprised. They want to evaluate everything. And, um, don't expect immediate counterproposals from an analyst. They're going to take their time to get back to you. And they're always skeptical by nature. They always think you're out to get them or someone's trying to pull one over on them. Silence is a way to think. And so if you know that they're an analyst and you see them being silent, for instance, my wife is an analyst. A lot of times she is silent. I have bits of analysts, but I'm mostly assertive. Um, and I try and fill it. And, you know, that's a mistake. Let them think. Let them go through it. If you're an analyst, you've also got to learn to smile and be friendly because otherwise you can just come off as cold, unfriendly, and you're not going to be able to report that way. Now let's talk about the accommodator type. They love the win-win. They love talking. They want to make friends with their counterpart above all else, and they're easy to talk to and easy to appease. However, they're usually poor time managers, and you might have to try and nudge them along to keep the negotiation going. Due to, due to their nature of wanting to be liked, they may give you something that they can't actually deliver on. So be cautious of that. They don't do much research, but they want to get to know you well, you as a person, and they go a lot of, off of that gut feeling. And so while it's easy to disagree, uncovering objections can be difficult because of the fear of being confrontational. So that's what you really have to look out for. If you are an accommodator, stick to the ability to be likable, but don't sacrifice objections. Be conscious of excess chit chat and things that the other types aren't particularly fond of and that may they may not have time for. Now the assertive type. Personally, I am a combination of accommodating and assertive. Um, but the assertive, you know, they believe time is money. Every minute is a minute spent not being productive that you're in this negotiation. Self-image is linked to how many things they can accomplish. They love winning, often at the expense of others. The view of business relationships is through the lens of respect. That's a lot different than the accommodator type. They want to be heard. They can't listen to you till they feel heard. And so it's important that you understand them. Mirroring works great with assertive people. Uh, they focus on goals over people, for better or for worse. And using mirrors and calibrated questions are great tools for them in order to get them talking. They don't feel the reciprocity, and they will be expecting a mile for every inch that you give. So be cautious of that. If you are one, be aware of your tone being overly harsh. Try and calm it down. Try and be a bit more accommodating, a bit more late night DJ voice. Uh, soften the tone and use calibrated questions as well to win over your counterpart. And that's where research is going to come in ahead of time.
Each group interprets time differently. No one's right or wrong. They also interpret silence differently. For analysts, silence means you want to think. Assertive types hear silence, and they think their counterpart has run out of things to say, so then they start talking. The analyst gets annoyed because they pause, and then they think the assertive type keeps interrupting, right? And really, it's just a miscommunication. The, we all have this I am normal paradox, and it's the assumption that the world should look to others as it does to us. But think about it. With three types of negotiators in the world, there's a 66% chance you'll see things differently than your counterpart, right? It's just math. So all three types negotiate differently from the way they prepare to the way they handle dialogue, and you have to understand their normal. So that's where you're going to have to research them. That's where you're going to have to even get a feel for them if you've never met them before coming into a negotiation or coming into an introduction. Let's talk about the black swan rule. Everybody knows the golden rule, okay? Don't or treat others the way that you want to be treated, okay? But the black swan rule from the black swan group, which is Chris Voss's company, they take that one step further and they say, don't actually treat others the way you want to be treated. Treat them the way they need to be treated, right? So an accommodator, if you're an analyst, doesn't want to be treated like an analyst. If you're assertive, they don't want to be treated like an assertive. An accommodator wants to be treated like an accommodator, right? And that's what that means. Treat them how they want to be treated, not how you want to be treated. Okay, so we're going to pivot now and talk about thresholds. Um, there's a thing that's called the ZOPA, Z-O-P-A, the zone of possible agreement. What that means is it's simply the threshold between the maximum the buyer is willing to pay and the minimum the seller is willing to accept, right? So if the seller is willing to pay $6,000 for a car, but um, the buyer won't sell for anything less than $5,000, and the ZOPA, the zone of possible agreement, is between five dollars and $6,000, okay? Uh, fairly straightforward. And here's the deal. You got to get this notion out of your head, okay? Experienced negotiators lead with extreme anchors so many times. And if you're not prepared for this, you will immediately go to your maximum when they drop an extreme anchor on you. Experienced negotiators will often want the other guy to go first so you can see his hand. All right. If that if that happens, welcome the extreme anchor, right? Or they want to welcome the extreme anchor. However, we're all human, and we can get off put by an extreme anchor. So it's really important that you're mentally prepared for an extreme anchor from an experienced negotiator. Otherwise, you got to be prepared to give an extreme anchor. Um. So when that happens, let's talk about how to counter that. All right. It's gonna feel like a gut punch, but you got to deflect the punch in a way that opens up the counterpart. So use one of the four ways we talked about earlier with open-ended questions, such as how am I supposed to do that, right? There's, there's multiple ways to say no without saying no. How am I supposed to do that? Remember, it's, it's slow. The tonality is very important in your facial expressions. It's non-confrontational. Just that kind of like that late night DJ voice, like, hmm, how am I supposed to do that, right? Or deflect with what are we trying to accomplish here? And what that is, that's a pivot, right? Like, so you are taking the emphasis away from you know, the current extreme anchor, the current gut punch, and you're trying to go back to the thousand foot overview and just say, look, are we trying to work together here or what, right? Um, and then you can respond to a punch in the face anchor by pivoting to terms as well. So there's multiple ways to pivot. And you could just say something along the lines of like, what else can you do for me to make it worth that price? And remember, all the deals are made up of price and terms, okay? So just switch. Um, to elaborate on that, you know, use a non-combative voice if you wanna talk about terms and just say, let's talk about what would make this a good deal or what else can you offer to make that a good price for me right so if they give you some crazy price that's half of the amount that you're asking you can ask it like in that tonality you know what else can you can you offer for that um, to make that price work so if, if they push you to go first don't directly say a price anchor okay this is super super important because 
you, you can end up gut punching them and then it just puts them off. They're going to be angry or they're going to be upset and they're not going to make logical decisions or, or they're going to uh, not want to get the deal done because they're not your enemy. Okay. The issue is the enemy. They're, they're your counterpart. They're not your enemy. So if they go first, uh, don't directly say a price. Instead, allude to an incredibly high number someone else might charge, right? Um, in the example of the negotiation services that Chris Voss provides with Black Swan, he might give an anchor of someone else by saying, well, you know, if you go to Harvard Business School, they're going to charge you $2,500 a day per student, okay? It's like in real estate, um, uh, you could say something along the lines of like, well, you know, uh, these guys across the street only pay five hundred thousand uh, dollars for the the ten acre parcel, right? Like just something, um, something that's not you, but it's just alluding to a higher price that someone else might charge, and it, it's much less combative. No matter what happens, just keep gathering as much data as you possibly can. We're going to talk about a student uh, named Farouk. He was a student that needed $600 from the dean to hold a, an alumni event in Dubai. And when he finally went to the dean, it was his last meeting. He had gotten shot down by every person he went to so far. So he was a little bit desperate, but he wanted to get the funding in order to do this event. I mean, without it, it was dead in the water. So before he could ask her for money during their meeting, the dean jumped in and said, hey, listen, I can't offer you any more than 300 bucks. And it was a lot quicker than he expected to get to the negotiation part and to get to the part where they talked about money. But hey, so you got to think on your feet, right? Um, so sometimes it happens. So he just replied, that's a very generous offer, but I'm not sure how that would help us achieve a great reception. So notice what he did there. He acknowledged her and said no without saying no, right? He gave her a compliment. He called it generous. And he just went to kind of like an open-ended question. I'm not sure how that would help us achieve a great reception. Then he dropped an extreme anchor. He said, I have a pretty high amount in my head. $1,000 is what we need. Then the dean said, that's out of my range, and I can't authorize that. However, I can do 500 So at that stage, Farouk almost folded. I mean, he had wanted 600 She had offered 500 You know, he could have potentially put it on. But he had been training for this. He was prepared. And so he had a couple more steps that he knew he could take to get more. So he responded, $500 is closer, but not quite there. $850 would work, though. The dean responded, she'd already given more than she had planned, and $500 is reasonable. Again, if he had been less prepared, he would have accepted. But because he had some steps, he said, I think your offer is reasonable, and I understand, but I need more money to put on a great show for the school. How about $775? The dean smiled. At that stage, he knew he had her. She responded, seems like you've got a specific number in mind. Why don't you just tell me? At that point, he felt like she was sincere, and he said he needed $737.45, and she was his last stop. Two weeks later, he got an email saying she'd put in $750. Success story. Okay, punching back. Sometimes you have to get a counterpart out of a rigid mindset, and if you're a nice person, this is going to be a long shot. So let's talk about expressions of anger. Um, Increase a negotiator's advantage and final take is one of the results of, of having anger. Like it can absolutely, it can absolutely help in your favor during the negotiation process. Okay, it also shows passion and conviction. But here's the thing: it reduces their ability to make cognitive decisions, which is going to affect the implementation process, which will cost you more in the end. So although you might win the negotiation, ultimately, if you're not able to, to carry it out, then you are the one who ends up losing. And so 
anger is not really a recommended emotion to go through. Uh, the other thing is that disingenuous signs of anger usually backfire. So when someone puts out a ridiculous offer, take a deep breath and show specific anger directed at the offer, not the person. Because remember, the person is your counterpart. The real lesson is being aware of how this might work on you. So um, it's one thing to offer a low anger, try and get somebody angered, try and get somebody triggered. That's not most people, but the chances are very, very high that at some point in your life, there is gonna be someone who tries to do that to you. So handling this with poise is a great, great tool. Saying something like, I'm sorry, this just doesn't work with poise works really well. Back in chapter seven, you know, we talked about not using why questions, okay? So whenever you say a why question, it's, it's very antagonistic and confrontational. The only time to say, why did you do that is if you want to knock someone back, okay? So think about it, like if I said to you or you said to your kids or your spouse, you know, hey, why did you do that? It only takes you a couple examples to realize why that might not be the best choice of words. It's almost always confrontational. The only exception is when the why is directed at yourself. So an example, you could say, why would you ever do business with me? Or why would you quit using your current supplier? They're great. The why coaxes them into working for you. You're essentially making them sell themselves on you. And let's talk about I messages. Using first person singular pronouns, this focuses the attention on you long enough to make a point. You can say, I feel blank because of blank. But be careful, again, don't be confrontational in your tone. And you never want to create an enemy. Um, at the end of the day, no deal is better than a bad deal. And be prepared to walk away and never accept a bad deal. So you have to know your worst case scenario and how well, how low you're willing to go ahead of time. Never be needy, never be desperate. It's important to maintain a collaborative relationship even when setting boundaries. This is also known as tough love. So never look at them as the enemy. They are your counterpart. The deal is the enemy. That's it. It's that simple. Punching back is a last resort. You want to empower them to come to your side. That's the key to negotiation. We talk a lot about theory and we talk a lot about tonality, but there are some really specific strategic tools that we can use and that Chris Voss uses as, as well. One of them is called the Ackerman process. So we're going to talk about Ackerman bargaining right now. And it still comes down to determining who gets which slice of the pie at the end of the day. That's what all negotiations are, okay? And yes, we can make bigger pies, but only to a certain extent. So that's why you're going to need pragmatic tools. Mike Ackerman is the name of the guy. He created this system, and it's an offer-counter-offer type method. It's not the same as meeting in the middle. I'm going to show you why. There's six steps to Ackerman bargaining, okay? If you're taking notes, write these down. Um, this is a very tangible one. Set the target price that you want to pay, okay? So let's just say that they want $3 million for a piece of real estate and you only want to pay $2 million, which is, by the way, would be extremely low. So what do you do? You set your first offer at 65% of your price. Then you calculate three raises of decreasing increments to 85, 95, and 100%. Then, in, so in this example, if you only wanted to pay $2 million, you would make your first offer at 65% of the $2 million price, right? And then it would be 85% of $2 million, 95%, and the last one would be 100%. Use lots of empathy and different ways of getting them to say no before you increase your offer. So don't just immediately come back. If you offer them 65% and they say no, don't immediately come back and say 85. Use the four different way, how questions, open-ended questions, four different ways of saying no before you go to your next offer and then repeat the process. When calculating the final number, okay, that's when you get to like 100% of your offer. 
use non-round numbers. So instead of $38,000, offer $37,893. It just sounds more calculated and more final. And the final number, throw in a non-monetary item that they probably don't want to show that you're at your limit. Okay, so what we've done in the past in negotiating things is, is we got to the maximum we wanted to pay, and then we said, hey, listen, what? Uh, and we'll throw in some wakeboarding lessons, right? Because um, I used to do that, do that stuff all the time. Um, it was a non-monetary thing for us. Um, we didn't feel like they would actually take us up on it, but it showed like this is our breaking point. You could also, I mean, uh, I think in the hostage negotiation things, she threw in like a speaker or like a, a boom box or something like that, right? So it doesn't matter. Uh, just something to show that you are at your maximum amount. It uses a lot of tactics here. 65% of what you're willing to pay is the extreme anchor, and this will push them into rash action if you go into it. Use the interval price increases to 85, 95, and 100% very strangely, or very sparingly, I mean. You know, wait to let them negotiate with themselves as long as possible. Wait till they've made a counter offer, and you've used calibrated questions before offering a higher amount. This plays in the norm of reciprocity, okay? Because you offered a concession and your price, then they're more willing to offer one to you. Another subconscious effect is that the diminishing sizes of the increases make them feel like they're squeezing you to the maximum amount. So you go from, you know, it's 45% less than you're willing to pay, and then you jump 20%, and then 10%, and then 5%. Each time you're getting half as much uh, an increased amount. So people who get concessions also feel better about bargaining than people who got a better price right at the bat. So what I mean by that is if, say you wanted to pay $2 million um, and he immediately agreed to it, he might, uh, you immediately offered it and he just agreed to it, he might feel bad, like he could have gotten more if you would have bargained. You might also feel bad feeling like you could have gotten less, right? So, but um, if you're the one buying it, let's just say uh, you offer a price and he accepts, um, you know, he's, he's going to have a little bit of a, a bad feeling in his mouth. And, and the same is true on the other end of that spectrum. So it just, it helps you create better rapport and a relationship without burning any bridges is the point. Chris tried getting every single hostage negotiation that he handled in Haiti below $5,000, um, as a personal goal that he just created for himself. And so when he's doing it, he used all of the tactics listed above. And in one story, he got the kidnappers to go to $4,751. And back in the office, back in Washington, they couldn't believe the price. They're like, how did they agree to $1? What in the world? And well, the answer is, it's the psychology, right? Think about it. You can't buy anything for $2, but you can buy so many things. There's millions of things that you can buy for $1.99, right? Well, it's a mental trick. Um, we're going to talk about the story of the landlord. So the landlord, one of the raised Jake's ran Jake was another student at Chris, from $1,850 to $2,100 a month after his first year was up. So Jake did some research. He found places close by were running for $1,800, but they were in a little bit worse buildings and the amenities weren't so nice. So the price was not unreasonable of the increase. However, the maximum he wanted to pay was $1,830. So what he did was he set up a meeting with the agent, complimented him, started building rapport with him, and then told him he could save $250 if he moved. He, he offered him uh, $1,730 for a year lease to set an extreme anchor. <laughs> as soon as, and remember, they had just said that it was going to be 2100 So the agent laughed and told him that was way below market price. And then Jake pivoted. Instead of arguing about price, he pivoted to calibrate questions. He said, how do you price lease renewals? Remember, he thought about this ahead of time. And the agent said they just use supply and demand. So that opened up a door for Jake. Jake pointed out that leaving the unit vacant for one month 
would cost them $2,000 or $2,100 because they, he wouldn't be paying the rent there. He then offered again before a counteroffer because he had to improvise. It was just one of those things, you know, life doesn't go according to plan, negotiation doesn't go according to plan. As Mike Tyson likes to say, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. <laughs> so um, he immediately just spat back, how about 1790 for 12 months? The agent said the number was too low and asked Jake to meet again. And remember, that's always a good sign. Anything besides a flat no is always a good sign. So they met again five days later and the agent dropped the price to 1950 for a year. Jake praised the agent and did a really clever mislabel. So his response was, that is generous, but $150 is a lot for me as a student. It seems like you'd rather run the risk of keeping it unrented. The agent said he can't make an offer lower than market in response to that. And then Jake um, paused and said he could bring it up to $1,810. Waited for the agent's response, but the agent still said no. Then. Jake prepared the last of his Ackerman offers. He got out a pen and paper and started scribbling fake calculations on the paper um, while the agent waited there. So then he goes, looks at the agent, looks down on the paper, goes, I did some numbers. The maximum I can afford is $1,829 a month. The agent paused, thought about it for a while, and finally said he appreciated him and he could make it work. Notice the brilliant use of Ackerman offers there. Non-round numbers, deep research, smart labeling, and saying no without saying no. That is a success story. Let's wrap up the chapter, talk about takeaways. Remember, when push comes to shove, you may have to hash it out with brash tax, and that's fine. Great negotiators know this is what brings out the best deals, though, even if you can't handle it. Um, remember, your counterpart's negotiating style, they're either accommodative, they're assertive, or they're an analyst. Don't forget those, two, three, uh, those three things. And prepare. When the pressure's on, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to your highest level of preparation. So, you know, make plans and designs ahead of time and be ambitious, but also set legit goals and pre-plan it. Get ready to take a punch to the face from an experienced negotiator. So set boundaries and calibrate questions ahead of time. Remember, the guy across the table isn't the problem. The situation is. And, of course, the Ackerman process. 65, 85, 95, and 100% before offering a non-round number. He'll feel you're giving him everything you possibly can. If you need help finding the perfect location for your practice or you're ready to invest in commercial real estate, email us podcast at leadersre.com. That's podcast at leadersre, R-E as in realestate.com. Or go to leadersre.com and fill out our form. See you next time.